to episode 8 of Counter Voices, a podcast dedicated to exploring diversity and its threads. Today's topic deals with diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and we'll be providing research, data, trends, and changes by corporations, businesses, and educational institutions. Our guest is Jorge Prosperi, who will provide research findings on 21st century trends. My name is Gloria Lapata Prosperi, and this is Counter Voices. Today's topic is what human resource departments refer to as DENI diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what some of the biggest American companies have to say about DENI in 2022. But first, let me clarify, Jorge, that much of your research and data comes from the largest American companies ranked and defined by market capitalization, meaning they're ranked and defined by market cap, earnings, revenue, price-earning ratio, dividend percentage to shareholders, operating margin, number of employees, and recruitment of employees. Also, connected to these companies is Wall Street that understands the depth and breadth of consumerism. Jorge, can you unpack for us some of the data that substantiates that diversity, equity, and inclusion have actually moved from words on a mission statement into real programs that are being institutionalized in the workplace? Let me begin by sharing current data from 2021-2022. When Auto.com, a job search platform, surveyed 25,000 workers asking what top quality job seekers were looking for in their next job, the number one answer included diversity and inclusion, along with transparency, respect, meaningful work, along with recognition and reward for a job well done. On the employer side of the equation, eight out of 10 major companies said that they would devote more money to diversity and inclusion in 2022. The Gartner organization states that companies with frontline decision-making Teams reflecting a diverse and inclusive culture will exceed their financial targets and they could outperform their peers by 50% or more. The reason for these changes are first to align the institution with the changing demographical rainbow of consumers. Secondly, in order to keep talented employees. And thirdly, to recruit gifted employees. And lastly, affirming that living in the 21st century means dealing with a diverse, international changing population, socially, culturally, and politically. So from your findings, can you tell us to what degree corporations actually conduct research on their consumers that leads to findings that DE&I really does need to be part of their mission? You've heard the adage, tell me what you spend your money on, and I will tell you what's important to you. Corporations spend billions on researching consumer perspectives regarding social, cultural, political trends. Why? Because consumers are now interweaving their social, culture, political identities and citizenship with corporations, institutions, political parties, ideologies, and political platforms. Corporations have learned that thinking vertically with blinders on results in missing out on two-thirds of potential customers. I'm curious if you're finding that the research and data collected by corporation 
tends to correspond with current political parties, ideologies, and platforms. Yes, the business world wants to remain connected to what consumers are thinking and feeling politically. So what are we dealing with in 2022? Research affirms that political ideologies that are connected to obstruction, promote conspiracy theories, fear-mongering, cynicism, domestic terrorism, white supremacy, corruption, autocratic policies, and anti-democratic principles is a death toll to American financial institutions and consumerism. Research affirms that consumers are making conscious connections between businesses, consumerism, and citizenship. So I'm wondering if because you mentioned the social, cultural, political, corporate matrix, if what you're actually saying then is that consumers are now evaluating an institution's financial backing or support for a specific political ideology? Consumers are aware of a CEO or a company that supports or aligns itself with racist, sexist, and xenophobic ideology because consumer, consumers are more politically astute and this information is readily available to all consumers. This is specifically true with millennials and Generation Z that are connected to contemporary universal issues such as science-based knowledge, climate change, protecting the environment, common sense gun laws, women's equity and choice, rule of law, inclusivity, and equity. But let's step aside for a moment from hardcore research. One research that anyone can do is by way of commercials. Just view them. What do you hear and what do you see? What we see and hear is diversity on every imaginable level. Listen to the language. Look at the people on the screen. Listen to the narratives and themes of commercials on our phones, TVs, and media platforms. Businesses are clearly and emphatically saying to consumers, we see you and we value you. Okay, well, let me play devil's advocate and point out that there are other segments of society that may be in total opposition to the diversity and inclusivity that's being portrayed in commercials. That message in the people in the commercial may be a turnoff to some people. Well, let's return to the research. In the past, commercials reflecting on promoting diversity and inclusivity would not have been produced because of the very point you just raised. In the past, marketing firms reflected a limited segment of society that they considered to be in the majority, referred to as white normality, white fragility, white capital, white considered to be the default race dominating white spaces. In other words, reflecting an image of the American consumers being white and hoping that people of color would acclimate and assimilate to the default consumer agenda of whiteness. Businesses now acknowledge that the future will be race and gender plural. Citizens are more astute and are making the choice to support businesses that are in line with their social, cultural, political agendas. For some citizens, it now means whether they shop at Ace Hardware, Lowe's, Menards, or Home Depot. Okay, so it seems that what you're saying is that consumers are increasingly aware of what side of history corporations and political organizations are deciding to be on, 
socially, culturally, and politically. Here is a data point that is increasingly true that has become relevant. Consumers are citizens scrutinizing the value and cost of being associated with a specific political ideology. The following are stark-sided choices that readily are available to all consumers as citizens. Number one, inclusivity or division. Number two, collaboration and consensus or obstruction. Three, problem solving or blamism and denialism. Four, critical thinking or anti-intellectualism. Five, rule of law or corruption. Six, learning from the past or historical revisionism. Six, pursuing the truth or altering it. And finally, seven, choosing between democracy or an autocracy. Furthermore, the data informs that all right extremism is not what moderate citizens condone, want to live with, or want their children to emulate. Businesses want to clearly avoid any association with extremism. Corporations understand that consumers, I repeat, are citizens that value transparency and veracity. They want to know the unvarnished truth that leads to credibility and trust in a company that reflects those principles. So from what you're saying, it seems that human resource departments always seem to be at the center of DE&I regarding leadership and management. They carry the heavy load because their responsibility is exponentially increased. So what is the current role of HR departments as to DE&I initiatives and advocacy? HR departments are on the front lines, no doubt about it. What I found interesting are the different reasons why HR departments get involved in DE&I. First, the HR departments that are stuck on what to do, fear change. Think of DE&I as an imposition, a matter of political correctness. Second, HR departments that are catching up and modeling others but have not committed to making systemic changes. And third, those that have been working on DE&I proactively for years by way of leadership, committees, providing ongoing professional growth. So in order for an HR department to remain ahead of all the challenging changes in the 21st century, where do you think their focus should be? Well, one area that is being scrutinized and focused upon is hiring practices. More time and finances are being dedicated to substantiating resumes and validating background checks. Vetting tools are being developed, providing more accurate and legal vetting of a candidate's background. In turn, candidates are scrutinizing companies by way of new tools as well. So let me ask this. I think I know the answer to it. But what about using Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok to screen backgrounds? You would think that using these uh, media platforms would be one way to vet candidates. But beware, social media platforms have inherent disadvantages and legal consequences for both prospective employees and employers. HR departments understand that the time to guard against needless lawsuits, embarrassment to the company's brand, and serious employee issues resulting in tragic incidents can be avoided right at the hiring practice. The emphasis is always on due diligence. Well, because of the rise in extremist groups, 
how does a company, large or small, guard against hiring individuals connected to extremist groups? Businesses try to avoid hiring candidates with a history of being associated with racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic beliefs, or associated with white supremacists, domestic domestic terrorists, militia groups, anti-Semitic groups. Why? Because all current data affirms that these groups are poison to businesses, all institutions. But you can see the problem. How does an HR department identify such ideologies and phobias during the candidacy stages? Aside from due diligence during the vetting process, is to create pre-hiring narratives and screening tools that clearly specify the institution's commitment to DE&I with consequences for employees who promote extremism. In other words, letting prospective candidates know up front what DE&I means to the business and by clearly defining expectations for all employees regarding participating in ongoing DE&I training and initiatives. So I'm really curious um, about the pandemic and how it may have influenced what we're talking about. Can you provide some data on shifting values and norms of corporations and institutions that were caused by the pandemic? Yes. Since the pandemic, small and large businesses acknowledge that hiring practice and standards will require focus on how workers are valued and treated. The language that is surfacing is that employers and employees uh, are addressing issues like working with dignity, respect, recognition, economic validation, ongoing professional development, secure pensions, family health insurance, and profit sharing. So given the changes due to the pandemic, did institutions continue to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion, or were these DE&I initiatives put on hold? On the contrary, because of the pandemic, DE&E was reflected globally by way of challenges and struggles that human beings faced that were universal, undeniable, and unavoidable. It was as if Earth had been invaded by aliens, attacking all of us regardless of our geography, culture, status, politics, and way of life. The pandemic exposed the frailness of the human condition. This created awareness, empathy, and compassion. We had more than a moment to reflect on the quality of life that we were used to and wanted for the future. The pandemic turned the world upside down and put it in a paint mixer. But it also taught us that we are connected far beyond regions, political parties, and ideologies, and I believe resulted in humanizing us. What other relevant research were you able to unearth that speaks to regarding the social, cultural, corporate, political matrix? The following is a synopsis of findings of employee-employer trends in 2021 and 2022. The sources are Harvard Business Review, Smart Brief, two Glassdoor reports on economic research, and the Gartner Report. Here are the findings. Hiring quality, dependable workers will continue to be challenging to all businesses. Two, maintaining quality, dependable workers will depend on company credibility and trust. 
Three, job seekers will research and shop for jobs using new job recruitment tools, software, and platforms. Four, remote work options will, will grow exponentially as the remote work genie, also available to few during the pandemic, is now out of the bottle. Employers will prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion action and accountability. Six, employees will have a say on shared goals, processes, and leadership accountability. Seven, employees will form DE&I study groups, think tanks, and committees with management focusing on community and professional development. Eight, workplace community will expand beyond company walls, making connections with other businesses, learning from each other. And nine, employees overwhelmingly expect flexible options, want to reimagine how productivity is measured, want to work with a diverse team, want to work with managers that are communicative, creative, and supportive, and expect managers to address ongoing mentorship, learning, and professional development rather than just supervise. Are you finding that there are any new and current DEI initiatives that companies are promoting and advocating? The research says yes. The 2021 February Oracle report provided the findings of 10 industry leading organizations that are embedding diversity and inclusion throughout their businesses. Each of the companies are breaking new ground with a variety of strategies that put diversity, inclusion, and equity at the center of their organizations. The Oracle research document was titled Going Beyond the Benchmark, Insights from a Workplace. This was an intelligences panel on HR and diversity leaders. I quote, the panel focused on the reality that while the topic of diversity and inclusion isn't new, 2020 was a wake-up call for companies to re-examine their D&I initiatives and concluded that advancing workplace diversity is more important today than ever before. Consumers are taking their businesses to companies with a proven commitment to DEI. A growing number of laws and requirements are being enacted to support greater diversity in the workplace. Employees are looking to leadership to make a difference. So organizations must evolve or risk a shrinking candidate pool, reduced market share, and ultimately a loss of profits. So in the course of this conversation, you've been highlighting major corporations and institutions, but there are small businesses that may or may not have a human resource department, nor address any kind of diversity, inclusion, or equity initiative. Also, the meaning of what it means to be a small business seems to be stretched, given a company's revenue ranging from $1 million to over $40 million dollars and by the number of employees from 100 to 1,500. Do franchises and small businesses have incentives to highlight and advocate for diversity and inclusion as well? Absolutely. Owners of a franchise in large or mini malls tend to have local or national corporate DI&E guidelines. All employees need to be aware of those guidelines. Small businesses are typically family-owned called mom-and-pop businesses. Your question is pertinent, pertinent because it deals with whether the owner of a small business is aware and knowledgeable about the I&E. 
Does that even cross her or his mind? Business owners who reach out to DE&I knowledge enhance their business on many levels. Therefore, it behooves them to remain current and aware. Okay, let me shift to what I consider to be another relevant player regarding our national workforce. To what degree does our educational system impact America's workforce? It was during the 1980s that corporations invited schools to look at their business models. This led to business leaders, corporations, and educators to identify specific abilities, skills, and dispositions that would determine success for their students in the 21st century. They were called 21st century skills. The focus was on what businesses would expect from high schools and college graduates. On December 18, 2006, Time Magazine provided a study titled How to build a student for the 21st century, and prefaced their story with the following. This is a story about whether an entire generation of kids will fail to make the grade in the global economy because they can't think their way through abstract problems, work in teams, distinguish what is good information from bad, or speak a language other than their own. The article was an indictment of the educational system that was being left behind. Now, the majority of public schools embraced 21st century skills, the skills within their curriculum. But independent, faith-based, single gender and homeschoolers were slow to change, remained attached to traditional content and methods. That resulted in some students graduating with different skills from school to school, region to region, and from state to state. This remains true to this day. So my understanding is that initially there were eight 21st century skills and they have been significantly enhanced over the past 40 years. What I find really interesting is that the business world did reach out to schools and tried to share their vision of the future. And even though the list is extensive, I feel it's relevant to share those skills and dispositions with our audience because they connect and impact four major segments of our society. And those are education, the business world, parents, and most importantly, future graduates. I would emphatically agree. 21st century skills have more than doubled over some 45 years. The following is a synopsis of 27 skills expected by employers from graduates. Number one, critical thinking and reasoning. That was always number one. Followed now by number two, metacognition. Thinking about one's thinking, reasoning. Number three, knowledge-based research. Four, quantitative and qualitative research skills. Now, quantitative research used to be the standard research process, collecting and analyzing numerical data. But qualitative research was added involving ethnographies, observation, interviews, providing access to voices dealing with historical, social, cultural, political context, and backstories. Number five, media, digital, and technology literacy. Now, in the past, technology literacy was mentioned but now media and digital literacy are valued and expected 
excuse me, I'd just like to jump in here and say <laughs> yes. And I'd like to add uh, that to their credit, the New Jersey school system has most recently added media literacy to their curriculum K through 12. Okay, please go on. Oh, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that, particularly when you say K through 12. Number six, systemic critical inquiry. In other words, curiosity, questioning, and probing. Seven, experimentation, testing hypothesis. Eight, validation of findings. Nine, information literacy, skills to unpack information. Ten, clarity of communication, language, communication skills. Eleven, diversity and inclusivity. Now, these two were always present right from the beginning. Twelve, global citizenship, viewing oneself beyond one region, state, or country. Thirteen, collaboration, team orientation, working together to solve problems. Fourteen, problem solving. Fifteen, dealing with change, adaptability. Now, this skill has generational implications. Is change a threat, to be feared, or a reality of life? 16. Creativity, imagination. 17. Flexibility, open-mindedness to new ideas. 18. Leadership. This also has a generational component, as leadership in the past was thought to be only associated with administration and management, but now institutions are viewing all employees as potential leaders by way of their professional growth and initiatives. 19. Perseverance, persistence. 20, initiative, self-starters. 21, resiliency. 22, productivity. 23, accountability, taking responsibility. 24, social skills, getting along with others, being part of a community. 25, civic and cultural literacy, connected to citizenship and social responsibility. 26, strength of character. 27, ethics veracity, and trust. Principles that I feel should always be at the very top of this list. Because what good are all these skills if the employer or the employee is unethical, dishonest, and lacks credibility? That's a very excellent point. <laughs> I find these skills most enlightening and a wonderful, wonderful checklist for institutions, schools, students, and parents to reflect upon. Perhaps skills and principles for government legislators to seriously consider. And taken together, this also raises the question as to whether the business world has surpassed our schools, but that's perhaps a topic for another future podcast. As we near the end of this podcast, what overarching conclusions do you feel are pertinent regarding DE&I in the workplace? Let me finish with a central data point. Transparency and authenticity among employers and employees have become major core values. Businesses are viewing employees and consumers as citizens, as human beings, respecting individual identities. Together, employers and employees want to be part of a 21st century that provides inclusivity with opportunities of worth that enhance the quality of their lives as well as the lives of their fellow neighbors and co-workers. This is why both employers and employees seek veracity, credibility, and trust. 
This is the undeniable and realistic vision of the future. Well, that was a great ending. Thank you, Jorge, so much for the research findings and insights. And we urge our audience to go to diversitythreads.com to become familiar with the complex dimensions of diversity, inclusion, and equity. A bibliography and glossary of terms are also provided on the website that addresses language, concepts, and contexts that may be of interest and may assist upon approaching discussions on diversity. And as always, sincere thanks to Alan Contino, executive producer and chief engineer of Delirium Networks, and to Nancy Gage and Anthony Baez for the graphic designs on the website and podcast. And lastly, our thanks to each of you for joining us. I'm Gloria Lapata Crossberry, and you have been listening to Counter Voices.